You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, Ephesians 6, or actually the whole book of Ephesians is where we're going to be today. Um, I, I feel like this is just taking a shotgun, and we're trying to cover all six chapters in the next few minutes, and so we'll see how this works out. But um, here's the plan for the day, and so I want to make sure you're prepped for this. We're going to kind of work through the whole book of Ephesians, end at the benediction, kind of this gospel farewell. We're going to give you guys a few minutes to uh, to be able to speak to each other how how the book of Ephesians has ministered to you over the last few months, and then we'll take communion. So that's that's the plan. So let's start um, back with just some some introductory type information to Ephesians. When we first started this, we said there's three or four reasons why we wanted to, to preach through the book of Ephesians. Here Here's the first one. Number one, uh, and this is a New Testament scholar that said this, so I'm stealing this from him, but this is a big reason for us. Pound for pound, Ephesians is the most influential letter ever written. Now, isn't it amazing to think about what can happen to words when the Holy Spirit inspires these things and the effect it can have on history? Isn't that a, isn't that a, just an amazing thing to think about how the Holy Spirit can inspire these words, carry them along, and literally change the course of history through them. Um, the book of Ephesians, Samuel Taylor uh, Coleridge, he said this about it, that it's the divinest composition of man. John Calvin, it was his favorite letter. Raymond Brown, another New Testament scholar, he said this about Ephesians, kind of comparing it and Romans together. He said only Romans could match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Okay, so if you take um, if you take Romans, we're talking a book that's 16 chapters, 433 verses. We're talking a long, big book. You take Ephesians, though, it is compacted into six chapters, 154 verses, about a third of the size. It's a book that you can read in 15 minutes, a letter you can read in 15 minutes. It's, it's a book that you can memorize, right? I mean, it's, it's an ordinary person can do that. You can do that. Right? And so, so here's the thing with Ephesians. I, I, when I think of Romans and Ephesians together, I think of Romans kind of in terms of the big semi who has just plowed away through history, where Ephesians is this, um, it's the sports car, it's the Porsche, kind of this gospel in a, in a real elegant type package you get in Ephesians. A real concise picture of who God is and what He's done on behalf of His sons and daughters. Okay, so you got, you've got this idea that it's the most influential letter ever written. The second reason, is because it counteracts a superficial knowledge of the gospel. And we talk about this often, but, but we, I mean, we say this all the time, that we live in a culture and among a church world who is inoculated with Christianity. They've been given just enough of the real thing that, that it's made them immune to the whole thing. And so Ephesians is a beautiful book in that it, it I, I, I kind of think of studying and reading the book of Ephesians as inserting an IV of a living gospel into you. And it just pumps through you as you read these six chapters. And on the other side of this, on, on this idea of the gospel, the prevailing way that most church people see the gospel is like this. The gospel is for those people who do not know Jesus. So once you, once you know Jesus, you move past the gospel to bigger and better things. And Ephesians does a great job of showing us that you never move past the gospel. That for an unbeliever and a believer, for a person that knows Jesus and a person who does not know Jesus, the gospel is what we all need. 
Like this is how, how Tim Keller, he says it this way, that the gospel is not just the way you enter the kingdom of God, it's how you make all progress in the kingdom of God. That it's not, it's not something that you just believe once, it's something you keep believing. It's not just how you enter a relationship with Jesus, but how you deepen it. It's not just how you're on the front end saved, it's how you're continually transformed. The gospel underlines all of that. So Ephesians does a great job of showing that the gospel is what every one of us need. That's why all my sermons sound the same, right? Just from a different place in the Bible. And so all of us need the gospel. This is what Ephesians is telling us. One of my favorite just single uh, verses in Ephesians is, is chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul calls the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we've used this this imagery of setting a, a treasure chest on your table, opening that chest up, and Paul's saying, the gospel is that. It's unsearchable. So you you dig your hands in and you start scooping out gold, and you realize that it's just replenishing itself. And, and Paul's telling us in, in Ephesians that for a believer and an unbeliever, somebody that knows Jesus, somebody who does not know Jesus, the gospel meets every one of, of just the needs on a soul level that you have. So it counteracts the superficial knowledge of the gospel. Number three, it's one of the most applicable letters to the church. And I think it's interesting just to kind of think through Ephesians as it relates to some of the other epistles in the New Testament, where you've got, let's say, the, the letters to the Corinthians. There were some messed up things going on in the Corinthian church, right? I mean, if, you, if you've read through those, you know that there was some serious Weird stuff going, I mean, you've got sons sleeping with stepmoms, you've got communion turning into kind of a cocktail party, I mean, you've got some weird things going on. And so, if, or, Corinthians is, is written to counteract 11 just sinful things going on in the church. You take Galatians, in Galatians you've got a distorted gospel, it's become a legalistic, works-based gospel. And so Paul comes in and he uses Galatians to counteract that, to say that's not the gospel. This, this is the gospel. But, but Ephesians doesn't have one of those. It's not written to correct any major problem in the church. And this is where I think Ephesians 6.22 is really helpful in seeing why Paul, just the heart of a pastor and why he wrote Ephesians. He says he's sending uh, Tychicus to, to the people in Ephesus with this letter so they'll know how Paul is and so that Paul, through this letter, can encourage their hearts. It's a letter written as a pastor to the church, for the church. This is why the church, I mean, the church plays a prominent theme in the book of Ephesians. In the first chapter in, in verse 22, um, Paul says, I've put all, or God's, God's saying through Paul, I've put all things under the feet of Jesus and I've given him his head to the church. And he calls the church his body. So, so Ephesians gives us not only a great gospel, but it gives us a rich biblical theology of what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, um, Paul's going to call it the household of God. That's what the church is. That it becomes a family for the people of God. In, in chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to, made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. That the church is the visible display of who God is and his beautiful gospel. In chapter 4, um, Paul talks about how God gives um, pastors and evangelists and prophets and apostles to the church. In chapter 5, he, he relates this, this marriage analogy and he, re, he, he relates that to the church. That the church is the bride of Christ. This is what we are as a church. We're the bride. Isn't that a beautiful imagery? That Ephesians builds for us of the church. If somebody were to ask me, planting a church, what should I preach in year one? 
I would tell every guy, I think you ought to start in Ephesians. I think that's where you ought to start. It's an applicable letter to the church. It's an encouraging letter to the church. It establishes who the church is and it establishes how they live under the gospel. Number four, reasons that we preach through Ephesians. And this is going to kind of where we'll spend the, the meat of the morning here. It bridges beliefs and behaviors. It builds a, a bridge over this gap between beliefs and behaviors for the people of God. And so I, I want you to just to get the, the panoramic picture of the book of Ephesians back in your mind. And here's how this works itself out. In Ephesians 1 through 3, if you just want to label what those chapters are about, here, here's a label for you. It's the gospel defined. Paul spends three chapters defining the gospel. He doesn't give you any commands. He's not giving you imperatives. He, he's giving you, this is doctrine. This is, this is the Bible for you. This is the gospel to you. This is what you need to know about God. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's filled with indicatives. Those are verbs that are statements of fact. And almost all of those verbs are in the passive uh, mood. So it's telling us, here are statements of facts in the passive voice that is done to you. So if you want to look at what, what are the first three chapters of Ephesians about, it's about what God has done for his people and to his people. It's about, it, it's gospel declarations. This is what you need to know about the gospel. This is what the gospel is. Okay, now in, in verse, or in chapter four, the whole tone of the book switches. We go from all these indicatives to now we get imperatives in four through six. Four through six is the gospel displayed. Paul's telling us, in light of what you know and believe about the gospel, here's what your life is to be lived like. So it does a great job of showing us that it's first belief and then it's behavior. That it's first doctrine, then it's duty. That first we get the gospel declarations, then we live out the gospel obligations. But if we get this turned around, it messes everything up in life. It makes us view God completely different. It's first, this is who God is and what he has done for us, what he has made us. And in light of that, we live out chapters 4 through 6. Okay, so we're going to take kind of a a helicopter view over this. We're going to run through the whole book. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. So here we go. The first 14 verses of Ephesians, especially when you look at at, at verse 3 through verse 14, look at that section in your Bible, 3 through 14. That is all one sentence in the Greek. So it's not divided up into several nice, neatly punctuated, you know, sentences. That's one massive run-on sentence, right? You get... A lot of red marks in English class for that one. Okay, so, so here's what you're seeing as you open up the book of Ephesians. You're, you're getting kind of an inside look at a man in the midst of worship. Where, where Paul is, is in a prison and he is in the middle of this moment where he is looking of God and in awe at the wonder and majesty and the grandeur of God. And he gets a pen and paper and he worships. He just starts writing. And this is what you get in these first few verses of Ephesians. You've got a man in the midst of worship praising God. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things right off the get-go. And this is one of the reasons I love the book of Ephesians is because it starts with God. It doesn't start with you and I. It starts with God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first thing Paul throws out the gate here. It's a book about God. These these first few chapters show us who God is and what he's about, what he has done for us. Now, okay, we say this all the time around here. The most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. 
Whatever that thought was that you just thought is the most important thought you'll ever think. That thought right there determines everything about your life and how you're going to relate to God. And Ephesians, the first half of the first chapter, is trying to build a grand, huge, massive picture of this is God. When you have the thought that follows that three letter, that God, when you have the thought that follows that, it's building this comprehensive and robust picture of that. And then now, now I want you to notice that this phrase in in this little section, this phrase in Christ. You see it all throughout the letters of Paul. I think it's 164 or five times in the letters of Paul, you see a, a phrase in Christ or an equivalent of. In the book of Ephesians, it's like 35 times. In these first 14 verses, you see the phrase in Christ 11 times. This is a ma- Christ is the hero of the book, of the Bible for that matter. But I mean, Christ is the hero. I, I think that the word Christ is used over 45 times in the book. Jesus is used over 25 times. He's the hero of the Bible and specifically the hero of Ephesians. He is the dominant character. Now I want you to, sh- I want to show you what God has done for you in Christ in these first 14 verses. Um, so, so look at verse two. That we are faithful in Christ. We, it's impossible for us to be faithful apart from Christ. That only happens when we are in Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. So you are blessed only in Jesus. The, the, all the blessings of God the Father flow through Jesus to you. If you're not in the line of Jesus, if you're not in Him, then you don't get the blessings of the Father. But through the Father, the, the, the gifts flow through through Jesus to you. Can I keep going here? Look at verse 4. That we're chosen in Christ. Not apart from, we're chosen in Christ. Verse 5. We're adopted through Christ. Verse 6. We're, God has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. Verse 7. We are redeemed through His blood, through Christ. Verse 9. He set forth the mystery of His will, His plan, and that's in Christ. Verse 10. He unites all things to Himself in him, in Christ. This is the, the, kind of these words of a missionary God here. That This is what God is doing. He is on this rescue mission to redeem lost people. To reconcile the world to himself. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Paul has nothing. And he's talking about all he has in Christ. Say, so, okay, this is gospel math. Gospel math goes like this. Jesus Plus nothing equals everything. This is gospel. This is what Paul's saying. I have earthly, I have nothing. I have no possessions. But in Christ, I have everything I need. Look at verse 13. In him we believe. There is no other name. You can believe in another name, but it will not save. Verse 13, later on in the verse. In him we are sealed for the day of redemption. We are secure in Christ. So do you see this right off the bat? Paul is saying, this is what you have and this is what you are in Christ. He's building an identity for the believer. Men, Paul's identity is not based in his job. It's not based in his performance. It's not based in his family. It's not based in how good his kids are. All of those are fickle foundations. Wouldn't we agree? Women. Ladies in here, it's not built on how good the marriage is. It's not built on how how great of kids that you can produce. Those are fickle foundations. Paul is saying the identity of the believer is in Christ, on the solid rock we stand, right? This is the idea. This is what Paul is saying. It is in Christ that all of these things come. It is in Christ that we get all the blessings of God, that we get redemption, adoption, 
All of those things happen in Christ. Then you get to verse 15. And this praise of Paul turns into prayer. Now, I want you to see the connection here. Prayerlessness in our life is always linked to a small picture of God. When we have the picture of God that Paul has in 3 through 14, then we start to pray as Paul prays. Your prayer life is always linked to your view of God. Always. Okay, so now I want you to, I want to ask you some questions on how you pray as opposed to Paul prays. So remember the circumstances in Ephesus. And when, 29 weeks ago, we went through the introduction and we covered Acts chapter 19, where the church in Ephesus begins. And here's what you see in Acts chapter 19. That the people in Ephesus are very spiritual, uh, very spiritual people. They are worshipers. Just like people in our culture. We are worshipers. And just like us, we just don't, they don't, they didn't worship very good things. They were worshiping idols instead of God. Just like our culture, right? Okay, so, so Paul comes in, he starts to preach the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit moves in a profound way. They start to get a grand picture of who God is, they recognize who Jesus is, and it causes them to repent. They, they confess their sin and they turn to Jesus. And revival breaks out in the city. And then immediately following that, a riot takes place. And the riot was really the the result of the people in Ephesus, their pocketbooks being damaged. They had a whole economy built around the worship of these idols, these these false gods. And so as soon as, as Paul comes in, preaches the gospel, these gods are dethroned. The people in Ephesus that were making a living that way went crazy. They were willing to kill, maim, whatever it took to get that out of their city. So the people of God in Ephesus are automatically marginalized. They're ostracized. Many of the people who were making a living had no way to make a living anymore. So you've got a persecuted and ostracized minority in a city. How would you pray for them? What would your prayer sound like for them? Now, notice what Paul doesn't pray. He doesn't pray, God, I pray that you would alleviate all their suffering. That's a good thing. It's just not what he prayed. He, he doesn't pray that, that man, they would take their city back over. They'd gain all their influence back. He, he doesn't pray that. Look at what he prays starting in verse 17 of chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind? It's not that physical, temporal things were unimportant to Paul. He just knew what they needed most and what we need most. And ultimately, what every one of us need most is to see clearly. That's what we need most. For us to know what we have and what we are in the gospel. This is essentially what he prays for them. That a people who who are in poverty would see that they have all the riches they need in Christ. That when they're in a hopeless situation, they have all the hope they need in Christ. When When they're in a situation where they are powerless, they have all the power they need in Christ. That they would see what they have in the gospel. That's what he prays for them. So let me ask you the question. Are you growing in awareness in what you have in the gospel? Or like the Puritans used to say, are you living far below your privileges? Do do you realize what you have and what you are? This is what Paul's praying for them. Okay, then you get to chapter 2. 
And chapter two needs to be flagged in your mind. This is probably the place you want to go if you ever need a concise and thorough, this is the gospel. This, this is probably where you want to go. Ephesians chapter two. In the first three, I'm going to sum up the first three verses like this. The first three verses could be summed up with a statement that, that would follow along these lines. Apart from Christ, you are in a more threatening and a more urgent situation than you could ever imagine. I'll let that sober you for just a second. That apart from Christ, a person is in a more threatening and more dangerous and more urgent situation than they could ever imagine. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts like this. For you are dead in your trespasses and sin. It doesn't say that you were just kind of sick. It says you're dead. Here's what dead means. Dead means that you are completely and totally unresponsive to God. This is how we're born. That we're, we're dead in our sin. We're unresponsive to God. It means that we are in active rebellion against God. That it's not that, oh, we would kind of like to have God, but we like this. It's that we are flying a finger high to God and joyfully doing it. Active rebellion again. This is what being dead means. Being dead means that you are unable to help yourself. That there is no means for you to bring yourself back to life. You, You are completely helpless in this. Apart from Jesus, your situation is more threatening and more urgent than anything you could imagine. It gets worse in in verse 2. He says, not only are you dead in sin, but you're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. So Paul's telling us not only are we dead in sin, but we're enslaved to sin. That we're following the world, we're following the devil, and we're following um, our own fleshly desires. That we're enslaved to them. That we're loving it. That we can't even see that we're slaves. And then at the end of uh, verse 3, he says, but not only that, but you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That you're condemned in your sin. Our condition apart from Christ is more urgent and more threatening than we could ever imagine. Dead in sin, enslaved to sin, condemned in sin. We are under the just wrath of God apart from Christ. See, the, the gospel has to sober us before it satisfies us. But this is the beauty of verse 4. Now, I want you to read verse 4. This is one you need to have in your memory, probably. But God. You see that? But This is the biggest but in the Bible, right here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were actively in rebellion, he made us alive. This is the great God of the Bible. This is the rescuer. This is the redeemer. That we are in sin, enslaved to it, dead in it. And God comes and acts. See, now th- this runs completely contrary to how most people present the gospel. Th- and I'll use it in kind of a metaphor to show how most people present the gospel. Most people go with this sort of a route. Th- that you're like the, the, the patient on the hospital bed that's really, really sick. You're on your deathbed. I mean, you know that the days are numbered for you. And here comes the great physician Christ, and he's got the cure. 
So he's walking towards you, but here's what you have to do. What you have to do is you have to open your mouth up, you have to grab his hand, and you have to guide that that spoon with that cure into your mouth. Open your mouth just wide enough for it to to kind of slip in, go down into your bloodstream, and, and cure you. So so it's as if God takes 99 steps and we take our one. That's not the picture of the Bible. I mean, the problem with that is it says we're dead. It doesn't say we're sick. It doesn't say we're we're partially alive. It says we are dead in our sin, unable to help ourselves. but our great God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. This is the gospel, that your great God acted for you. He he did something to you. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thought to know that, that God cherishes you in this sort of a way where he takes a dead person, breathes life into them, and makes them alive. The gospel does not make sick people well. It makes dead people alive. Verse 11. The, the rest of chapter 2, verse 11 on, when, when we first laid out the book of Ephesians, it was the, the kind of the section that I looked at and thought, man, I, I'm kind of dreading getting to that one. I, for whatever reason, I looked at that and wasn't very excited about it. But as soon as I started kind of jumping into the middle of this passage, it became one of my favorites in Ephesians. And here's why. Big picture, Paul is saying this in 11 through the rest of the chapter. He is saying that the gospel not only saves you from the penalty of sin with God, It breaks down every wall of division horizontally, bringing you into a household, into a family. It it restores, it reconciles people to one another. Okay, now if you can kind of throw yourself back in the context of Ephesians 2, here's what Paul is dealing with. He is dealing with Jew and Gentile relationships. They hate each other. If they could kill one another and get away with it, they would gladly do it. And they wouldn't feel bad about it. Okay, now this is what he says in verse 14 from that. Look at verse 14 in in Ephesians 2. For he, Christ, is himself our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And here's what Paul is saying, that when the gospel works itself into you, it starts to, to destroy and 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 crumble all these dividing walls between you and people. And so here's what he, he's saying, that racism cannot exist where the gospel has, has been rooted in. He's saying that, that distinctions between people, you, they're not going to exist where the gospel has taken root. That when you start to, to put around your life people who look like you, live like you, spin like you, recreate like you, talk like you, everything like you, the gospel comes in, uproots that, and breaks down all these dividing walls. And so maybe you can think about it this way. Right now, across the world, today, there are Chinese people, Japanese people, African people, European people, American people, worshiping Jesus. Only the gospel does that. There are educated people and uneducated people worshiping Jesus. Only the gospel does that. There are people in in buildings like this who you would never find in buildings like this together apart from the gospel. This is what the gospel does in us. It starts to break down all these barriers that keep us from people. This is one of the greatest ways you can know if the gospel is working into you. Do you have people in your life 
that are friends that you have made family that don't look like you. They don't think like you, vote like you. It's a little bit tender, isn't it? They don't anything like you. And if you brought them in, this is what verse 19 in Ephesians 2 tells us. That in Christ we are made into a household. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now is that working itself out in you? This is what the gospel produces in us. In a church, this is what the gospel produces. That takes us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 um, introduces this idea of being a gospel steward. Look, look at the first verse. Paul tells us, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and look at verse 2 in chapter 3, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me for you. Here's what Paul's saying. That when God saved him, it made him a steward of the grace of God. That, that when, when, when God poured out all of his riches on Paul, the riches of his grace on Paul, that it made Paul this steward, this gospel steward, where he looks at all of his life through the lens of how do I steward this for the cause of Christ? Now let me ask you the question. Do you look at life like that? As a steward? And this is bigger than your money. This is in every area of your life. Do you see yourself as a gospel steward? When you look at your money, this is the question you should ask. How would a gospel heart spend this? When you look at your time, this is what you should ask. What would a gospel heart do with this? When you look at your home, this is what you should ask. Not how can I build a fortress that would keep us in and them out, but how can I steward this for the cause of Christ? What would a gospel heart do with the home, with cars, with all of these things, your time, talents, gifts, all of these things that God has given you, what would the gospel propel you to do with them? Are you a good gospel steward? Paul's saying that the gospel not only saved me, but it created a steward in me. Where now all of these riches of God are not just flowing into me. I'm not just damming them up and creating this cul-de-sac where I'm hoarding them. But all of these things are now flowing through me. I'm conduit where all of these things are flowing to me, through me, to people around me. Now, Now does that look like your life? That the gospel has made you into this beautiful stew where you take the grace of God and dispense it freely. And then you get to the end of of chapter 3 where Paul prays again. And and this is essentially what he prays. This is a beautiful, uh, probably the most poetic part in Ephesians where he prays for the people of Ephesus to know, look at verse 18 and 19, to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that he would really know that he is loved by God. Now, I want to ask you a question as it relates to this. Do you know that you're loved by God? If, if you've been redeemed by the gospel, you're in Christ, that, that you are really loved by God, not like a future version of you, not like the version that if you can get this stuff fixed up, then you're good to go, but did you know that God is fully and finally pleased with you? That there's nothing that you could do to get more of his favor or more of his grace. There's nothing that you could do, no act that you could perform to get more of his love. That he loves you. Now, and this is what I I see just in people and in myself. It's easier to intellectually agree with that than it is to functionally live in the middle of that. 
And one of the ways, I was reminded of this yesterday, listening to a guy talk. I, one of the ways that you see this play out is just with our prayer life. When you start to know that God really loves you, it really changes the way you approach God in prayer. That you, you can really call out to God and cry out to God as a good father who is giving you nothing but grace. See, we, we can approach God as a father who loves us and has redeemed us, adopted us into the family. We are heirs with Christ. We are seated. Bes- that, that happens when we know that God loves us. Now, I'd encourage you to just think about that thought. It, it radically realters all the way we see life. When we know that God loves us, we no longer are on this constant search for the approval of other people. The, the fear of man that has its tentacles in so many of our hearts it starts to unwind and untangle when we know that God has given us all the acceptance, all the love that we could ever need or want. Do you know that God loves you? This is what Ephesians, the, the last part of verse, or chapter 3 is about. Okay, so in, in the first three chapters, there's been one command. Look in 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. One command, first three chapters. The command is to remember. So, so Paul's given all these beautiful gospel declarations. This is what you have and this is what you are in the gospel. And the one command in the first three chapters is to remember that. Not to forget that. Our, our memory is like wet cement. Things go quickly in there, right? So Paul is telling us, you've got to daily remember that. And we've said this consistently around here, that the most important thing you can know in life is the gospel. The most important thing you can remember daily in life is the gospel. That we have to continually remind ourselves of this. We have to continually recall this. This is written to the church, to a place just like this, a crowd just like this. And Paul's saying, remember this gospel. It is impossible, if we forget the gospel, it is impossible for us to live consistently with a zeal for Christ. It's impossible. It's only by reminding ourselves of the gospel continually that we're able to do that. Okay, now you get to chapter 4, we're going to speed up. Everything switches in chapter 4. And you get to chapter 4, the stream of imperatives widen, and now Paul is telling us, this is what the gospel looks like lived out in you. This was the gospel defined, this is the gospel displayed. This is what you believe, now this is how you behave. This is doctrine, now this is your duty. These are gospel declarations, now here are your gospel obligations. Here it comes, the gospel displayed. First thing he says in Ephesians chapter 4, is I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see it in verse 1? This is the first thing he says. Here's what your job is to do now. In light of all this, the first three chapters, now you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You start to display the gospel in your daily life that you consistently, as a pattern in life, you live out the gospel. In your marriage, it displays the gospel. How you forgive people, it displays the gospel. How how you get angry at these things, but not at those things, it displays the gospel. How you put away falsehood displays the gospel. In all these areas of life, he's saying, walk in the gospel. Live out this gospel that you are now a showcase of the gospel to the world. This is what the church is, that you become this showcase of the grace of God, of the gospel of God. Okay, so he starts to to kind of put some substance to this, and he gives us four kind of contrasting images. Okay, so he gives us four of these. The first one, you'll find it in verse 22 and 24. First contrasting image, he says, you put these things off, and you put these things on. This is the first way you walk in the gospel. Take those things off. This corrupt former life. 
and put these things on. And then he starts to spell out exactly what that is. Look at verse um, 25. You put away falsehood and you speak the truth with your neighbor. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So in other words, be the right sort of anger, angry. Be, be the sort of anger that has God at the center of it, not your own selfish desires at the center of it. And then he, in verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so he'll have something to give to anyone in need. Verse 29, he tells us to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth. Put these things away, but, but speak in such a way that it imparts grace to people. He, he tells us to put away in verse 31, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice. Verse 32, put this on, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, and look at this gospel logic, as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, it's only when we know how we've been forgiven that we'll forgive other people, that we'll extend grace to other people. So he's given this imagery of you've, you take these things off, you put these things on. Next chapter, chapter 5, look at verse 7. He gives this other image, this, this next imagery of light and darkness. Verse 7, he says, don't be partners with them, for you were once darkness. That's what you were, not just something you do. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, verse 8. So he's given this contrasting image of you're to walk as light. You're to be people of light that shines into darkness. These are missionary verses. Four through six are missionary chapters. He's showing us how to live as sent people, as missionaries, to display the gospel to the world. Saying you live as light. Okay, and then look at verse 15, chapter four. He gives this third contrasting image of wisdom versus foolishness. That we're to look carefully how we live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Verse 17, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's telling you to walk wisely, not as fools walk. And then in verse 18, he gives the fourth contrasting image. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You're to live in the fullness of the Spirit, where the Spirit is animating you, leading you, prompting you, guiding you, convicting you, leading you to repentance. You're, you're filled with the Spirit. Then you get to verse 22 in chapter 5, one of my favorite sections in the book of Ephesians. We slowed down here and spent some time on marriage. And we said this about marriage. Verse 31 and 32 of chapter 5. That marriage exists more for God than it does you. That marriage does not primarily exist to get your needs met. To make you happy. For somebody to wait on you. To fill a want in you. That marriage primarily exists for the glory of God. And and then in verse 22 we talked about the role of, of ladies that the Bible calls ladies to submit to their husbands, that there's a joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over them. A fire alarm came in about right there and uh, spent two weeks on that. And then then we went to verse 25 and talked about the role of a man. That a man is called to lovingly lead and lay down his life and love his wife. And we put it in these terms. That men, I want every man in here to look at me. That men are called to pastor their homes. That if you're a man and you're married in this room, you're called to be a pastor. You're called to pastor your wife. You're called to pastor your kids. Now just imagine if you switch places with me for just a second and you became the pastor of Stonegate. You would start thinking about, okay, what do we need to do in the next year? What, what do these people need? What do those people need? How can we make movement in this? How can I speak the gospel? How can I grow them in the God? You'd be thinking about all these questions. 
And this is what starts to happen when you start to, to live in the fact that you're a pastor of your home. You start to ask different questions about your wife, about your kids. You start to live the gospel there. So guys, are you being a good pastor in your home? Ladies, are you allowing that to happen? We got to chapter 6, and Paul starts talking about parenting and, and how parents relate to kids. And if you're a teenager or you're living under the authority of your parents in their home, under their authority, Paul says this, you're to obey and honor your parents. And then he talks to parents. Parents, this is your job. You're to raise them, in verse 4, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I want all parents to take a look up here real quick. Your kids are great gifts to you, but they are terrible gods for you. And many of us have, have elevated our kids to the point of, of godhood, where we are bowing around this idol and worshiping, where our entire life is structured around them and not God. Our thoughts flow through them and not God. They make terrible gods. You're going to kill yourself and them in the process. God has called us to treat kids as kids, people that we are entrusted with, that we're to steward, that we're to bring up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, here's your job for your kids. It's not to worship them. It's to pass along a vision for the glory of God and a mission worthy of their lives. That's your role. Are you living in that? This is what it means to pastor your family. Coming on in in chapter 6 and verse 5 and on, Paul tells us, he gives us this theology of work, that the gospel radically re-alters how we approach work. This is a good thing. This is the way we display the gospel. And then you get to verse 10, and this is like one of those famous passages in the Bible. You've got spiritual warfare, where Paul says, strengthen yourself in, in the might of the Lord, right? We've talked about this for the last few weeks. Put on the whole armor of God. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. Verse 13, he tells us to put this armor on so that when our day of evil comes, and it's coming for all of us, we'll have the resources to stand. We call this armor these gospel promises, these privileges, these things that we are and have in the gospel that God has given to us. So we talked about fastening on the belt of truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We've talked about the shield of faith, right? We talked about um, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Then we ended last week by saying, praying. Verse 18, we, we read the word, we understand these gospel promises, and we pray all times, all sorts of prayers, all perseverance for all sorts of people. And then that's where we pick it up today. Verse 22. Or in verse 21, Paul says this, chapter 6. So that you also may know how I'm doing, or how I am and what I'm doing. This is the, the heart of a pastor writing to his church in Ephesus. So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and fellow minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Verse 22. One of the reasons Paul gave this letter to them. I have sent him in this letter for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So we're going to break down just some of the formality of a typical Sunday morning. And I, I just want to ask this question. We're going to answer this to each other out, out amongst here. Right? A little bit scary. Um, how, how has the book of Ephesians encouraged you over the last 29 weeks? How has it ministered to you, convicted you? How has it began to work into you, start to imprint in your heart to where it's, it's moving you to a different way of living and a different way of seeing? How has the book of Ephesians been at work in you the last few, few months? That's the question.
So, and we're just going to go where you are. You can just speak where you are in your seat there. So, and, and think about this. If we're family, if we're really members of the household of God, th- this needs to become more normal for us. So, with that said, ways that, that Ephesians has spoken to you. Yes. Yeah, pastoring your home. That's great. What else? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Andy. On, on prayer and being a, a man of prayer. Yeah, that's great. What else? For sure. That God's given us all the resources to fight in, in this battle. Yeah. What else? That God has set his love on you from eternity past. It's a humbling thought. For sure. That's great. Good. It's submitting and obeying to, to parents. That's great. Yeah. For sure. The, yeah. Totally. That the gospel becomes the motivator. That it's not just pressing on the will or trying to get fear and guilt to be the motivator for you, but that the gospel becomes this motivator and animator in life. That the Holy Spirit uses that to, to motivate us to live out all these these gospel obligations. Yeah. Okay, maybe one or two more. Anybody else? Want to go? Yeah. Going once. Going twice. Okay, so here we go. We'll finish it up in verse 23 and 24 here. here's how he finishes the letter. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Grace be with all. Now I think it's interesting how peace and grace form these bookends to the letter. You've got it in one, two, and now here at the end of the the, the letter. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Okay, so I I want you to hear this as we kind of close and bring all this to, to a finish today. That the purpose of the book of Ephesians is not just to give you more knowledge. It's not just to, to give you a bigger gun to shoot people with. It, it's not just so you'll know another couple of cliches and so you'll memorize another couple of verses. That's not what the book of Ephesians was written for. The book of Ephesians was written so that you would have a grand view of who God is and what he has done for you and that the, this last verse would come true for you. That, that you will have this love in, incorruptible. That that you would look at God and you would be passionate about Him. That that your thoughts and affections would be stirred for Him. I mean, that that's what essentially Ephesians is for. It's to to put a a stir in your heart and, and to start to raise affections out of it. So when you look at God, you see a God that is worth everything to you. So when you see God, you see a God that is your God. That he's your father, that he loves you, and that he's worth your life, that you're running after, pursuing. There's no competing masters in you. And this is, when you think about this idea of incorruptible, I think this is what he's getting at. That there's not competing masters. That idols have not dethroned the place of God. That kids are not your God. That your job is not your God. That your money is not your God. That, that your reputation is not your God. That God is your God. And all other things have been demoted to their proper place. This is what it means to love him with an incorruptible love. That when you look at God, you are affectionate for him. That you have passion for him. That you are pursuing him. And you know what's crazy? Is this is so rare in the church. That people walk in and out of places like this because it's kind of this thing that they do culturally. Not because they love Jesus. And Ephesians is written to you to start stirring in you, this is the God I'm supposed to love. This is the God that's worth everything. I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to give this God everything that I am. Love incorruptible. 
That this is the idea. Just let me just ask you personally, is that, is that happening in you? Are you being stirred with the book of Ephesians and the gospel specifically to love God more? As a church, are, are we moving in that trajectory? Is this the, is this the trajectory of our church? Now I want to trace for you, we're going to end with this, I want to trace for you Ephesus in the Bible, specifically the church of Ephesus in the Bible. We're first introduced to it in Acts 19. About five years later, you see the book of Ephesians written from Paul to the church, and then start flipping to the right in your Bible. You'll start, you'll flip past First and Second Timothy, written from Paul to the church in Ephesus, to, to Timothy, his son in the faith and pastor of the church. Keep flipping over to First, Second, and Third John, that's, that's written to the church in Ephesus, First, second, and third John, and then all the way to Revelation chapter two. This is the last time we see the book of, or the, the people of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus in the Bible. Revelation chapter two. And we'll, we'll close it with this thought. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it. Revelation chapter two. This is roughly 40 years later. Here's the, the message that, that Jesus delivers to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands in this passage equate into the into these seven churches. He's writing to seven churches in Asia, seven lampstands, seven churches. Okay, so chapter two. This is the church in Ephesus specifically. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. That's a great quality. We want that here. He goes on to say, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Great quality. that They have a discerning mind. They can see false teacher, good teacher. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Great quality. They have a perseverance about them. They're enduring. He goes on to say that you have not grown weary. Great quality. But look at verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. That, that something has supplanted Jesus in your life. An idol has dethroned Jesus. That, that he is to be the central piece of everything, but you've let something else creep in. Maybe it's your preference. Maybe it's your music style. Maybe it's you want this. I, I, but you've let something creep into your church and Jesus is no longer central. And then look at what he says, verse 5. He gives two words of counsel here. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember the gospel. Remember, this is your God, and this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who has affections for God. A Christian is somebody that God has radically re-altered their heart to where they love God. They have an appetite for God, a desire for God, a want for God. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you were. Remember that. Remember the passion you had, the affections you had. And then he says this second word of counsel. Remember and then repent and do the work you did at first. Wherever an idol has dethroned the central place of God, repent of that. Turn from that idol and turn to God. Whatever that idol is. So this, this is really where we end all this is repent. Remember where we were and we need to re continually repent of where idols try to come in and supplant Jesus in this place. That we need to be faithful as a church body and as a family to always keep Jesus central. To be diligent to encourage one another, to stir up love and good works in one another. So that we, as we look around here at the end of the day, can say that he, that she, that they had a love incorruptible. May it be with us. May it be with us.
Look at these last words. This is the warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That when we have an idol in the place of God, it makes God actively work against our church so that he can free our church from our idols so that we can love him appropriately. Man, may it never be with us. Let's pray. We are going to end um, all this by taking communion this morning. We're just going to give you some space to, one, remember, to think through the gospel, to think through where our hearts should be and have been with God. And if our hearts are not affectionate for God this morning, the encouragement is to repent. To repent. And the Bible takes repentance seriously. It, it doesn't it doesn't give you the assurance that you'll have it tomorrow. It calls repentance a gift. So that we need to take advantage of this moment that God's given us here. So as we pray and as we sing, this is kind of the, the where we'll, we'll end it. That, that we're going to take the bread and the juice. And this bread, it symbolizes the gospel. That this body of Christ broken for you on your behalf to reconcile you to God, to redeem you, to adopt you, to bring you into God's family. This bread, this body has been broken for you. On the cross, all of our sins stacked on Jesus. All of our guilt stacked on Him. All of our condemnation came crushing down on Him. This is what we have when we have the bread. That we're saying we are dependent upon this. We need this. God, we need you to be this sort of a church, to be these sort of people. And then we've got this juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And um, Ephesians 1, 7, it says that we are redeemed through his blood. There's no other way that on the cross, his blood was spilled to cover your sin. That, that your sin, when it is covered with the blood of Jesus, looks as white as a wedding dress without spot or blemish. So we take this broken body and we take this blood of Jesus and we rejoice in the gospel. And Jesus, I pray that you would weigh this down over us, that you would imprint these words that you inspired by your spirit in the book of Ephesians and it would live in us. It would shape us, redirect us. And God, we we finish by taking the bread and taking the juice and just an active expression of we are dependent upon you. We need you this morning. We need you this afternoon. We need you tomorrow. We need you. God, help our church be the people of God that you called us to be. Our families to be the families of God that you called them to be our men to be the men of God, our ladies to be the ladies of God. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.